the, start, the starting point for any investigation of anti-Semitism should not just be condemning others, but looking inside ourselves. Live lips. Um, for me, this debate is personal. I'm not Jewish. But as a black man, I know what it feels like to experience racism of both the individual and institutional kind. I, I want to start um, straight off the bat by talking about an issue that is really important to Hope Not Hate and I know is important to you, which is anti-Semitism mm. in the Labour Party. You talked about this in a debate in, in Parliament uh, recently, I thought quite powerfully about your own experience and how that mm. informed how you feel about this issue. I understand how a racist insinuation is not just offensive but isolating, making you suddenly feel vulnerable and excluded. I know how the repetition of a well-worn stereotype or trope, followed by the inevitable denial that it is racist, can be undermining and exhausting. And I know because I have seen it and felt it, as well as read about it, that hostility to Jewish people and age-old anti-Semitic stereotypes are becoming more common. You must feel aghast that a, la a Labour Party, a party that is founded on principles of anti-racism and anti-discrimination, is mired in this kind of debate at the moment. I do. I tell you what I think. I think the fact that so many of us are struggling to understand, and some people have got there faster than others, that when you have something like, uh, the, like the, the corrosive force of anti-Semitism, um, it doesn't necessarily, it comes in many forms, uh, but also the, the, the subtle nature of it sometimes, and the fact that it can be a, what we could be seeing is a first step um, towards something far more obvious. I think if you can't listen to the very people, and, and I now you know, have spoken to lots of friends and colleagues, some of them on the right, some of them on the left of politics, some of them very supportive of, of Jeremy Corbyn, who've said that they have seen and felt um, a, distinct, a distinct difference. They felt offence in some of the things that have been said. And they feel uneasy in a way that they haven't felt for, for many years. And you, 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 you dismiss that at your peril. Um, now, as a black person, I know that if, if I stood up and said that I think there are issues in the party, which I may well do because, you know, look, our party isn't perfect. We all can be racist. We can all be sexist. Um, we can all be homophobic. It's a constant fight to kind of check yourself. And, but if I stood up and said that and, and, someone's, and the first thing that came back to me was we're fine and actually your motivations for this I want to bring into question, I'd be aghast. You know, mm. As a Labour Party, which is meant to pride itself on its anti-racist credentials, um, then you expect a higher standard than any other political party. So, you know, I understand why people could be um, upset with how, with how things have been. Do I think that, that we're kind of crawling with kind of um, race hatred, uh, anti-Semitic hatred? No, I don't. I think it's a small number of people, but I think where it's become difficult is the number of people who seem to, be, who have made excuses for what is there. Um, it doesn't make a difference how small it is. It's, it exists, so we need to deal with it. And the denial of want of dealing with it, I think, has been part of the problem. Yeah. Not wanting to see that there is even a kernel of an issue there. Yeah. It's clear most of the well-documented rise in anti-Semitic incidents here and in many other parts of Europe is driven by the alt-right, the far-right and the fascist right. They are emboldened by the xenophobic rhetoric of our age to form a sickening new far-right internationalism with sometimes devastating consequences for all racial minorities. Why do you think the leadership was so slow initially to, to respond to the concerns that the Jewish community was expressing? 
I think there's a number of reasons. Um, some of them are more difficult than others. I think, um, you know, sometimes the messengers. I think it's, it's, it, the instinct could have been that the messengers are, have been hostile to us. Hence, this is another, another phase of that hostility. I think that could be part of it. And I think that's a, it's a, a trap that it can be fair that people can fall into. Um, I also think some of it comes down to, you know, some people have had to be on a, have to go on a journey because if you, so some of the, much of, sometimes I think on this whole anti-Semitism issue, the state of Israel has been pulled into issues. Mm. Now, I personally feel that, you know, the treatment of Palestinians and the, the, the acts of the Israeli state, there are things which I think are, I find aghast and I've spoken out about them. Um, but I think sometimes you can cross a boundary where you begin to confuse Jewish people with the state of Israel, you know. And, as I, you know, as I've said before, you know, that's like, you know, equating uh, all black people with the actions of Eddie Amin. Um, if someone said to me, you know, what have you got to say about Eddie Armin? I mean, well, what do you, I'm, I'm, I'm British. Right. You know, what have I got to say about Eddie Armin? I'm like, oh, I'm black. Right. OK. And so then I'm starting to think, what's going on here? Mm. Well, you know, look, that's something that I think people have crossed over onto on the issue of Israel. So people need to just kind of think about what it is they're saying, what they're doing. And I think a lot of people have had to kind of, will have thought, OK, I kind of get this now, but it's mm. taken a while. So I think as a black person, sometimes you are able to empathise in a way which perhaps doesn't always come as quickly to others, you know, because you've experienced that disempowerment, you've experienced that kind of, mm, what's going on here in this conversation? Uh, you know, maybe that's a possibility. Yeah. There is a deal on the table which will get us out of the EU in good order. They, they, keep, James, they keep voting James, James, can I just come in, James? Where I come from is a term here. It's called chatting breeze. You are chatting breeze. Your lips are moving, but nothing is coming out. It's just warm air. Yeah? Nothing you have said just then is actually true, or most of it isn't. Because I can tell you Excuse now, me. the first two years, I can say it here because I'm not, in, I'm not in Parliament, but the first two years, two years ago, when this happened, when, this, when Brexit came about, I was in, I was down in Glastonbury, actually, in the left field tent, and I remember John MacDonald standing up and saying... This is a mess. Let's see if we can work together with the Conservative government to work out how we can take this forward and minimise the risks I've to our talking, economy. I've been That's talking, what he said. I've and been what happens, to your we got the Lancaster House red lines from right. Theresa May, which I, is a conversation with your party, with your ideological splits, no one else. That's what it's about. This is about holding the Conservative Party together, not our country. And that's what your party has done for the last two years, because you feel you're born to rule this country and you're not. I want to talk about um, Brexit, I'm afraid, um, just for, for, for a few moments. Not about the uh, ins and outs of the parliamentary machinations, but I think more importantly for people that listen to the Home Not Hate podcast and, and what we've been talking about is where Brexit came from and you know, you're, you're a Norwich MP mm. obviously um, I think Norwich voted Remain but East Anglia as a whole Norfolk um, uh, voted very strongly to leave do you think that the uh, ways in which uh, or the, the factors that, that led to that vote have been talked about and addressed enough since the referendum? No I don't and um, I think initially after the referendum there was more soul searching that went on from many of those in the kind of what you would call the kind of core remain camp, if you if you want, um, who perhaps 
not exclusively, but had done better or, or over the last 20 or 30 years under various, you know, both New Labour and the Conservatives had perhaps been less impacted by austerity um, than many other groups, perhaps disproportionately lived in cities as opposed to towns and rural areas. Um, but I think that, unfortunately, the way that Theresa May decided and the Conservative Party to conduct Brexit basically polarised the country. Because I remember going around after and speaking to many of my Remain constituents, wanting to understand what they wanted me to do. Because I'd kind of nailed my colours to the mast on Remain. And it's like, well, what do I do now? We lost this vote. So I went around and so many Remain people were saying, you know, fair cop, Gov. I don't like it. I'm a Democrat and we're British and that's how we roll and we're going to have to leave Europe. But just try to minimise the impact economically. How do we do that? And I think that was where most people were. But what, you know, Theresa May has basically driven a coach and horses through that in her attempt to try and hold her party together and get through. She's called a general election, which didn't go so well. She had the six, you know, the, all her red line tests. And it's, it seems to have been a dialogue with the Conservative Party rather than a dialogue with the British people, which is what, how do we bring the 48 and 52% together? That's what she would have done if she was a kind of great leader, I think. And she completely bypassed that. And consequently, you've now found that those... Both sides of that of that equation have polarised. We've been doing a lot of polling about um, uh, how people are responding over the last you know, 18 months, 20, uh, 24 months uh, to the referendum. And anger amongst people that voted Remain is really on the rise. I think the media perception is that people that voted Leave are the people that are angriest about politics, they're most distrustful yeah. of, about the political system. We're actually seeing that on the rise on the Remain side. Does, does that bear out in your Yes, experience? definitely, because I think increasingly... People who've been found themselves polarised, I imagine that the same groups are now saying that politicians speak less on their behalf than, than anyone else. And, and that's because if you push people into it, into those, into those margins, and then you've got a parliament which is kind of, uh, you know, focused on trying either to find a compromise or you're, gonna, you're not going to appease anyone because ultimately you've got people who for, for whom nothing but remaining in the European Union... Uh, come what may, irrelevant of why the vote happened is the only answer. And those for who leaving the European Union in the hardest Brexit possible to fulfil the will of the people is the only answer uh, that will accept. That will accept. And if you're not offering that somewhere in the middle of a variation of that, you're, it's a betrayal narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that plays exceptionally well and is playing exceptionally well on those who want to leave, the fact that there is this, you know, from the right, that there is this narrative of betrayal. Now, you know, you look throughout history, whether it's losing a war or whatever the reason, that betrayal narrative is a very powerful narrative. And those who understand politics, especially on the right, understand it's one that they can tap into. And they are. And, yeah. they're, and it's fueling that. We're seeing that from a whole range of people, actors on, on, the, on the right, from UKIP to Stephen Lennon, Tommy Robinson and further to the to the far right. And that kind of um, weaponization of the distrust or disillusionment that people have is, uh, we think, uh, sparking this surge of far right mm. activity. I mean, you, you must have seen it out on College Green and around Parliament with yeah. these sort of so-called yellow vests. Yeah. Um, it's also manifesting itself in a, abuse of MPs and, and their staff. How do you think... Yeah, is it just about government changing rhetoric? Is it uh, media no. responsible? What, what I, think, I think I think you know there are, it's, a, it's a very complex set of answers um, which are responsible. Is the media has our media, which is a you know that could be quite frank. It's changed over the last forty years. It's a very corporatized media with a with an agenda. 
um, of which I think has kind of undermined how the media operates, for example, is one, one thing, about the analysis and the balance that it gives. I think that's one part of it. The other part of it is, you know, look, where are we as a country going? You know, look, if you think about what's happened, we're trying as a country to find our place in the world in the post-war, post-colonial, post-empire period. And we're still doing it, you know. Um, and I think this question that was asked about what, how we fit into the kind of broader international framework, this is part of that question. So there's that side of it. But the other part of it as well is the inequality within our society. It's something which I think now most politicians accept over the last 40 years. Whilst we as a country have got richer, the inequality has grown. And, you know, whether it's, you know, Thomas Piketty's work, we all understand that the more unequal society, the more divided and unstable it is. And I think it's a classic case of where we are now. So all of those factors, our place in the world, our, you know, historical narrative, a media which hasn't always been the best in terms of the fourth estate, in terms of disseminating that information, and that inequality and instability, all of them are playing a part in, in that churn. And consequently... You know what you're seeing now in terms of abuse, in terms of betrayal narrative, in terms of division in politics, it's all coming to the fore. How you solve that? Well, uh, that's another question. Yeah. I, I grew up in Norwich, and when I was growing up, my, my dad always said that Norwich was the National Front's second city after London. I don't wow. actually know if that was sort of statistically accurate, but it was a sort of a dad fact that uh, stuck with me. But I think Norwich has come a long way over the last 30 yeah, it's years. Changed. And it's, it's a reputation as a more progressive city, but it's still quite homogenous. And I wondered, you know, how much do you think the city has changed and how much do you think mm. that Norwich has earned uh, that, that reputation as a bit more of a progressive place? So I think Norfolk is, is a quite an interesting... No one ever goes through Norwich. So if you're, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a saying, there's a saying, you know, you never, you, never, you never pass through Norwich. I mean, you go to Norwich because it's out on a limb. So consequently, Norwich is, has been quite insular. Um, and that has changed. When I first got to, I got to Norwich just at the end of the 90s. Um, and, you know, I can't remember as a black person looking around thinking, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty white city. Um, um, but I've always found Norwich to be a, a pretty welcoming place. Um, and, you know, I loved it so much, I decided to become the MP, you know, and so on and so forth. I like the Remington Steel advert. Um, but I think the changes that have taken place in Norwich have been cultural and class as well so what you've seen in Norwich is you've seen now you've got three higher education you've got the research park you've got the University of the Arts uh, you've got the UEA um, you've got the, the uh, university teaching hospital so you've got a big influx of people who've come in who are educated um, who have pretty good incomes. And that's changed the kind of social dynamic of Norwich. It's also brought people in from other parts of the world, so more students coming in from overseas. And that's changed the kind of the fabric and the mix of Norwich. But if you go outside of Norwich, outside of that little, uh, little enclave, you go, you go into Norfolk and the surrounding towns and villages, you're probably looking at a lot more what North Norwich was like 20 or 30 uh, or 40 years ago. So I think Norwich has changed, Norfolk perhaps less so, at, at a slower rate. But Norwich now still has its tensions, you know, it's, it's, and there are, there's poverty, great deal of poverty in Norwich, in pockets of it, there's also affluence. Um, so in many ways, Norwich is a microcosm of the wider country. Um, but I would say, by and large, the changes that have taken place in Norwich have happened in part because of the social dynamics that have happened. Um, and, consequ- and yes, there are more 
more people from you know different ethnic minorities in Norwich. Um, there was more of a, of a hodgepodge of people there now. And I wanted to ask maybe about Norwich specifically, or, or more generally ac- across the country, the the rise in Islamophobia that we're that we're facing, the way in which the far right is trying to um, uh, both uh, uh, drive that and uh, uh, take advantage of it. Uh, is that something you're seeing in Norwich itself, or I mean, maybe this is a, something across the country? How do, how do you think we can tackle that, uh, whether it's um, in the media or, or from the far right? Yeah, I think um, so. In Norwich, we've been really we're really blessed. I mean, we've had mosque with windows knocked out before. The response in Norwich was the mosque was love bombed. So there were like you know hundreds of messages of, of love and support, which I think was really reassuring to the, the Muslim community. I'm going to um, to visit most of the mosques on Friday that I can to go and just um, show some support about what's happened in New Zealand. Um, I look, I, I wouldn't say that Norwich was any worse than any other city in terms of how uh, our, the Muslim community in Norwich are treated, but I, I think it's quite clear that what we're seeing, particularly in terms of Islamophobia, so much of the kind of underpinning of the language that's used, the way that uh, Shamima Begum was treated, for example, some of the language about some of the wars that have happened um, in the Middle East, that there does tend to be, I feel, some of the language that's used by the media, you know, the stuff about Sharia law, the fact that UKIP is now merging into its is, is kind of uh, morphing into an anti-Islam is into an Islamophobic party. This does tend to tell you that there is a permission that's being given, and that permission isn't starting from the bottom. It's coming from the top. It's coming from um, from newspapers. It's coming from politicians who oh, the Conservative Party. Who are, of- indeed, you know, and if you think about um, Boris Johnson's comments uh, and others, you can see this is something which. Um, has, I think, given permission for people to become more and more outspoken. Plus, then you have the rise of the internet, social media, and what's happening in other countries kind of being fed in, and it becomes quite a toxic mix. One that you need to, I think, we need to be aware of, because it won't stop at just that group. You know, I, don't, I think history shows it won't just be one small group, it will, and it is, it, it spreads to other groups as well. We always like to end these uh, interviews by asking people um, to share something that um, is giving them hope at the moment. But I, it must surely be Norwich's promotion of charge that you're, you're going <laughs> well, to put words in uh, your mouth. That, but. No, well, I mean, look, I, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to go up. I'm, I'm, I, I know. Have I jinxed it now? <laughs> you know, I mean, you're right. But I don't want to say it out loud. I mean, no. That's one thing that gives me hope: Norwich going up, and and I'm, I'm pretty confident the way we're playing at the moment. We, we are making hard work of it, but the way we're playing, I think we will. But kind of moving, you kind can, of segueing from football <laughs> um, to what gives me hope. I'll tell you what gives me hope: um, the sense that the public are on a daily basis increasingly beginning to understand the existential threat of climate change and sustainability issues. I think the climate strikers, and I'm not just saying this because you know they've hit the news recently, but my job is about sustainability. And one of the things I'm quite clear is if you think about the Green New Deal in the US, if you think about what's happening in Europe, if you think about what's happening here in the UK, I can see amongst my colleagues there's a growing understanding that Brexit aside, this is an existential threat. And the way you're going to tackle it 
is not just by tackling the environment, not just by tackling the economy, but also by tackling social ills. And you can do all three at the same time. And if you understand that, if you can tackle inequality, you can make the environment sustainable and the economy boom in a way that is sustainable. That gives me hope that actually we may not wipe ourselves off out of the planet. Clive Lewis, thank you very much for joining us. 